0: If it's
1: happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
0: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson,
2: Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Waddart and Jan McQueen. Happy International Women's Day. Women run the world from outside the spotlight. Time to shine more light in their direction.
3: Here, Scott Thompson. All right, who's going to argue? Good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Welcome to the fun. Um, uh, the reason, of course, we're playing Beyonce. I sent this out to the crew. Hey, what do you guys, uh, International Women's Day, uh, y- your ideas for song? Boom. This one came and that was don't even, um, you know, no other suggestion. This was it. So Beyonce, uh, gracing Hamilton today as the theme song. All right. Uh, congratulations and happy International Women's Day to everybody out there because this is much as much, uh, Uh, about the guys as it is the girls, and by that I mean guys understanding what the heck this is all about and what we are celebrating here. So um, before I get to the politics of the day and load the gun and... And everything that's going on. Uh, you know, and you know, I'm coming, I, I'm, I'm sort of came up with this as I'm coming on the air. So, uh, I'll try not to babble. I'll try not to get verklep, but you know, um, uh, it's fascinating when you see I'm, I'm 60. <laughs> um, and, and where women have come in that time. And I'm going to, and of course, can always do better. Can always ba, 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 ba. We're going to talk about it over the course of the afternoon. Um, but you know, I think of my mother who, uh, passed away just the past year, uh, last year, um, and her life and, and what she had accomplished and, um, what really became lessons for all of us kids in the family. And my mother um, emigrated to this country, emigrated to this country uh, from Scotland, actually tried twice and then went back and then came back again uh, after the war. And... Um, and started school here the second time in what would have been grade 9 and and endured you know what it must be like to move your family across overseas seven days on the boat and uh, everything into the little suitcase and you know all that and then uh arriving on the shores and you're an immigrant so you're different you look different you talk different you wear your hair different uh you dress differently and uh my mother coming home and saying to my grandmother her mom you know i can't do this crying kids are picking on me i'm i can't i can't continue on so my grandmother said well then you're going to work end of story and within a very short period of time i think she was working in an envelope factory uh, from the age of 14 and um, you know eventually married my dad had a family bought a house sold that house bought another house and raised the family there where i grew up and and continued to work changed jobs in in when we were had moved uh to Markham where I grew up uh she um worked on a line in a cosmetic factory and, you know, the whole idea was to, uh, she wanted a new fridge. So I was three years old. My sister's older than me. So I'm just going to work for a new fridge. And then, uh, geez, once you get that money coming in, look what we can get, a couch now. So um, my mother worked right until she was about 63 and then was jobbed out. And, uh, you know, three kids, some grandkids got to vacation in Florida. So you think how far women have come. And then I think my sisters in their career, I have one that's a nurse. And what my wife has accomplished and her profession, she's a professional. It's amazing, really, in a generation where... Everybody has come. My grandmother, you know, she was she's a housewife. She made preserves. She raised the family while the dads went to work. So in a generation, we've we've you know seen this this other partner take on all of these other duties as well as the household duties. If you look back at what my grandmother would have done, and now they're also making money. They're also So they're doing basically what the guys doing. But then they're also doing all the household stuff. And let's be honest, around the house, (laughs) it's mostly mom. I mean, you're there, I'm sure, guys. I mean, we all try to be the right hand and da-da-da-da-da. But, you know, and you're focusing on your career as if yours is somehow better than than theirs or hers. So it's there is no doubt in my mind that women do more work than guys do and it's just because uh, they have to if they want to play and they want to be equal which really i know it's not equal does it so it's something to think about in, in on this international women's day how far we have come yet yet you know if they were truly equal then everything would be kind of equal whether it's the money whether it's the the responsibilities at home and uh, you know i mean you can't put a blanket not every you know one one size doesn't fit all here not all there's lots of great guys there that are doing the opposite i mean i'm not i'm i'm generalizing here but i think what w- my point is in all of this is in a generation from our mothers and grandmothers to where our uh, daughters uh, hopefully, and their daughters, hopefully, go. It's amazing how much progress we have made. But really, when you think about it, how much work they have had to do to get there, and and how much work they have to do to stay there. Because often, they're breadwinners, and their mothers, and all of that responsibility, too. So, to me, Um, that's what we have to praise. It's not only what they have achieved and the equality that they're striving for every day, um, but also how much more work it is for them because they're moms because they're women anyway. So in all of that, I have not been able to play one political clip nobody's screaming at anybody. It's just no fun. No, it's way better. It's International Women's Day, and there's lots of time for the others, so we'll talk about that. Alright, um, you know, we've talked a lot, and we do every International Women's Day about a lot of the same issues. How far have we come since the last, and especially uh, coming out of a global pandemic as well, and how can companies and employees show support on this day, and of course equality and, uh, and equal opportunities present for uh, all genders and and specifically the big issue of wage parity. To talk more about all of this, uh, Mujah Razul is with us, Associate Director, Peninsula Canada. And with us now, Mujah, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me. So,
3: on this 2023 edition of International Women's Day, what is the, the the top priority? What are you hearing more of? I mean, obviously, we hear lots about wage parity, but we're also coming out of a pandemic, and there was a whole pile of other challenges
4: with that. Yeah, that's very true. We hear a lot about the the age, uh, the pay gap, the the wage disparity, um, and and the the main focus now is women in leadership. So that's the conversations. How do we get women in leadership and what steps can companies take to provide that opportunity for for the inclusiveness in the workplace and providing women the, 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 um, the opportunities to go into a leadership position?
3: Uh, interesting. You brought up leadership positions because I was thinking about women in politics and I I was reading something the other day on how much that is influencing, uh, what we're doing, what we're thinking about, what the issues are, how much of that influences what we see at the corporate level.
4: There is a big influence. So if if we do take a step back, just focusing on the gender pay gap, I I, I would like to focus on that issue because it then ties into the opportunities that are provided to women in the workplace and opportunities. So stepping back, obviously, looking at um, there is a pay gap, obviously, in the global report, I think there was around a 16% um, disparity, which means on every dollar, there was an average of 80, 84 cents ever, the women made on every dollar. So for organizations to address that pay gap, so putting measures in place, including stronger anti-discrimination policies uh, and being transparent on pay, um, having any cultural changes to combat gender biases and stereotypes in the organization. So focusing on that issue for will then create an inclusive workplace to provide an opportunity for women to go into leadership positions.
3: So we hear a lot about wage parity, and everybody just assumes that it's two people, uh, one male, one female, exactly the same position, exactly the same qualifications, exactly the same education, what have you, experience level, but the male is being paid more than the female. Is it that, or is it the amount of time and and issues that women have to go through if, for example, they decide to have a family and then come back into uh, uh, the workforce inside? Much. Is it both? Is it, Which one is it? is it? Or is it a combination would, of the two?
4: I would say it's a combination of the two. So if you're looking at just getting a new job, so if we're looking at that experience alone, I feel like if you focus on uh, giving uh, the job to a male, they would actually come in and then negotiate their salaries, where a female typically would just accept the role and be like, okay, I'm happy with the role and I'm going to accept it. That in itself creates the first instance of a pay pay disparity. So it's really important for organizations to put pay bans in place so that even if someone comes in and negotiates or doesn't negotiate, you're not that far off from each other. So it could be a combination of both. It's yes, a male and female might have the same experience, same education, but it's that negotiation steps where the male would typically do. In my experience, I've had that in the, the individual female coming into the role, not necessarily having that experience to do that negotiation.
3: So, she, oh, so uh, you've, uh, males just have the, the negotiation savvy or more so of that. I don't want to stereotype here, but that's basically what you're saying. But aren't you also saying that as a result of this, males are more expensive?
4: It's funny to say that, but I think it's more of the, um, the opportunities. I, typically, in my experience, for roles I have, I have offered, um, the individual coming in will negotiate. So I'm not saying mails are more expensive, but as an organization, you can actually put a band in place so that doesn't happen.
3: And, and, and what is the best way to do that? How, how do you start that process?
4: It's pretty simple. So typically you would want to go and complete a market analysis just to see, okay, for this position that I'm offering, what would be the typical salary? There's obviously going to be a minimum salary requirement and then a maximum. An organization would want to offer the median, so something in the middle. So when somebody comes in, you would offer the range. and right. You wouldn't want to make the median too far off from the maximum.
3: So is uh, uh, again when 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 a, a a prospective employee comes into a place of business, is there a conscious decision being made? Well, uh, if we hire the woman, we'll have to we can pay her less. Is that a discussion that's happening?
4: I hope not. Um, I feel like a lot of organizations now are aware of, okay, equal rights for, for equal experience. Um, so I hope that's not happening in industries. I'm going to say maybe 10 years ago, yes, I could have seen that happening. But because employees are conscious and employers are con- conscious of this, um, it's not happening so often. But a lot of there's a lot of steps employers can put in place so that doesn't happen. And there's a lot of, um, I guess, programs in place for companies to go to just to understand not to do that. All right,
3: Moja, a few seconds left. What, what's your message on this International Women's Day?
4: My message would be just developing and implementing policies and practices for organizations to, to have gender equality and equity in the, the workplace and to not discriminate. So having discriminate, anti-discrimination policies and pay transparency and offer your staff and offer everybody an equal opportunity to become the uh, best workers they can, provide them with leadership opportunities and training opportunities as well.
3: Mujah Razul with us, Associate Director of Peninsula Canada, giving us a uh, company, corporate perspective of International Women's Day. Mujah, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
3: You're listening to the
1: Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: You know, this is probably going to sound bad. <laughs> that should be a red flag, Scott, that you should probably stop talking. Uh, but seriously think about this I cannot think of a better way or, or certainly one of the great ways let me put it that way one of the great ways to celebrate International Women's Day would be to have a beer huh? who is in? come on Uh, All right, now I'll tell you the rest of the story. Uh, Lakehead Beer Company, Dawson Trail Craft Brewery, Sleeping Giant Brewing Company, along uh, with Canada uh, Canada Malting, have uh, created a pomegranate rye pale brew called Better Together. Uh, Why is this a deal? Because these are all women at breweries in Thunder Bay, Ontario, who are toasting International Women's Day today with this own special crafted brew. To talk more about it, Ashley Watt, head brewer dawson trail creek brewery and with us now ashley thanks for the time i hope you're well
2: hi how's it going thanks for having me
3: thanks for being here like is it wrong to say we need to have a beer on international women's day to celebrate i mean we're in aren't we this is great
2: i mean that's how i'm celebrating it so
3: i agree (laughs) this is an absolutely incredible idea how did you come up with this where did all this all this start
2: You know, uh, it started with uh, having a beer with another girl that works at Canada Malting. She used to be a brewer herself. And uh, she was saying how great of an idea it would be to try and get everyone together and do a beer together for International Women's Day. So it was pretty last minute us planning it, but uh, we threw it together pretty well. And yeah, so we invited all the local breweries to come out for the day and brew a beer together. And yeah, today we're releasing it. So.
3: Was what was it like to what was it like to work with all those other breweries? Was it all women? Was it a mixed bag? What was it like?
2: Uh, it was mostly women uh, lakehead uh, beer company, great guys. Uh, they had their female staff come down and help out, um, but they were so gracious to host us for the day uh, and so we did the beer there. But it was about 20 women, all mixed from uh, Dawson Trail Craft Brewery, Sleeping Giant, Lakehead, and Canna Malting. So it was a really good turnout.
3: And so how long had you been working on this? And today it's officially um, uh, on sale, I guess. Or so How long did this whole project take?
2: Oh, uh, well, we started thinking about it maybe end of January, and then we brewed it wow. February 17th. Uh, And yeah, we packaged it yesterday and it's on tap today at Lakehead Beer Company in Dawson Trail. So, yeah.
3: So tell us about the beer. What is it like? How did you come up with a recipe?
2: Yeah. So uh, it's a pomegranate rye pale ale. So we use pomegranate juice concentrate. uh, So you get this beautiful tartness to the beer. uh, And then we used HBC and Mosaic Cop. So you get a nice uh, fruity flavor to it. It's uh, pretty nice. Very easy drinking.
3: How did you come up with this? Was it uh, was everybody collaborating on this? How did, okay, uh, pomegranate. That's where we're going to go. How did you des- How do you decide what direction to go in?
2: Oh, uh, you know what? I've wanted to do a pomegranate beer probably since November. <laughs> I've been thinking about it. It's been in season, so I was like, oh, that'd be such a nice fruit to work with. Um, so I thought this would be the perfect occasion to bring it to life.
3: And is this beer designed for women or men? Or when you when you came up with the recipe, was there any of that in mind?
2: Uh, I personally think it's for everyone to enjoy. Yeah. Um, I'm very glad that all the women get, uh, get to get together today and enjoy it. But uh, there's also a lot of men out there that love to appreciate us. And we want them to enjoy it too. So everyone's invited today. Everybody gets to come out and enjoy it.
3: So what happens today, so it's officially uh, available today, so what happens today, how are you celebrating this occasion?
2: Yeah, so today uh, we tapped it at Dawson Trail at noon, and then Lakehead Beer Company opens at 4 o'clock, and uh, we're all getting together at Lakehead Beer Company, and um, $1 per liter of the beer is going to the Elizabeth Fry Society in Thunder Bay, which is an awesome uh, group that supports uh, women in in our community, so... Uh, We're going to have a table set up uh, asking for pay as you can uh, for extra donations on top of that, and they're going to give a little talk, and I'm probably going to give a little talk, and yeah, just all enjoy the beer together.
3: So, um, was this, tell me about International Women's Collaboration Brew Day. Is this all part of that initiative?
2: Yeah, so that's um, an international kind of event. Uh, Everybody's either started brewing their beers already or they're brewing it today. And then they have a live map on their website where you can see everyone who's participating. So it's really awesome to see Thunder Bay on the map this year. Maybe people are realizing where Thunder Bay is now.
3: (laughs) So so how much, let's talk about that. Uh, How much support have you received? What's the response been like? What's the publicity been like? It's been pretty
2: crazy, you know, like CBC Thunder Bay covered it um, on the brew day and they released an article uh, yesterday and all of a sudden started getting uh, messages from all my friends like across the country that they saw it. So it's pretty uh, surreal to think uh, how widespread it is. It's nice that uh, people are getting to hear about it.
3: So when you came up or when you all gathered and came up with this idea, was this part of the International Women's Collaboration Brew Day or does this just all tie in nicely or did you, was that just something you, the, the the one common denominator in all of this or did you see this this day and think, you know what, we got to get involved in this too?
2: You know, I've always wanted to participate in the International Women's Collaboration Brew Day and uh with the pandemic happening like it wasn't quite right to get everyone together in a big group so this year was the perfect year to invite everyone out uh to come together and do it and just lined up perfectly um to release it on international women's day um but it was just nice to get all the different breweries in thunder bay and the women that work there together and get to learn a little bit about all their different positions as well as canada malting so is uh it all lined up perfect to be released for international women's day
3: That is very cool. So why do you think, Ashley, this is getting the attention that it is?
2: Uh, I don't know. I think uh, women are typically like minority in the brewing industry. So I think people are enjoying hearing that uh, there's more and more females in the production side of it versus uh, all the other sides of the brewing industry. So maybe people are enjoying the fact that there's a couple of female brewers in Thunder Bay. Yeah. but I don't know. I think it's really cool that uh, people are interested. I hope uh, more breweries in Canada participate next year.
3: Is there a stigma that beer is a guy thing?
2: Uh, it's definitely a male-dominated industry, and there's always barriers to jump uh, with that. But I've personally had a really great experience uh, at the brewery I work at. So, um, But it is typically pretty male-dominated. Um, but I think there's a there's. Uh, Starting to be a bit more women in the industry, which is really nice.
3: What about entering this uh, this brew into an award of some sort? Is that in the what's on the horizon for this brew?
2: Uh, we haven't even considered that. Uh, it's just kind of a exclusive one-off for International Women's Day. Maybe next year, uh, if we put a bit more planning into play, uh, maybe we can. Uh, submit it for an award, but uh, I don't know. I'm just happy that everybody gets to enjoy it today.
3: So this is the first one. Are you going to do it again next year, or is that a no-brainer?
2: I, th- I, think, I think it would be nice to do it again next year. I had a really good time uh, getting together with all the different uh, girls from the breweries here.
3: All right, Ashley Watt with us, head brewer of Dawson Trail Creek Brewery, and uh, along with uh, the other breweries up in the Thunder Bay area, uh, getting together and and putting this together, the Lakehead Beer Company and Sleeping Giant Brewing Company, as well as Canada Malting. Boy, congratulations. What a great idea, and it's great to see you getting so so much mileage out of it, uh, Ashley. And maybe we'll chat again next year. Good luck.
2: Sounds great. Thanks for having me.
1: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk 900 CHMO.
3: Hit the website at 900CHML.com. You can find out all the details about March Padness. Almost halfway through March in our initiative to raise funds and gather essential needs, supplies for essential aid continues. One company that has been putting out videos in support of March Padness to get the message out is Building Dreams Contracting. Uh, Mike Valchuk is with us, owner of Building Dreams Contracting and supporter of of the CHML Children's Fund. Also, Olivia McKay, president of the CHML children's fund they're both with us now uh, olivia and mike thanks for taking the time greatly appreciated thanks thanks for having back. all right uh olivia let's start with you and exactly what this is olivia of course president of the children's fund uh and this is one of many initiatives that we do over the course of the year in order to raise awareness and raise funds and such olivia what is the objective of march padness tell everybody how this works
5: um so it's just to gather um pads tampons diapers uh personal items hygiene items so that no no family has to go without it started in 2019 i was talking to a charity and they were talking about how young girls miss school and it kind of broke my heart and mm. it started cuz i had a, i had a miscarriage in 2018 so i knew what i needed during that time and all the the products that i needed and i just thought like why should these girls go without, like, why should they miss school? And I think one thing that really touched me was when they said to me that families have to choose between food and personal hygiene. And I'm like, mm. that shouldn't be the case. So I I was like, I need to do something. I need to make a negative into a positive. I just need to start something. And I just remember, I'm like, I'm going to start this March Padness and I'm going to see where it takes us. So we launched it in 2019 and it picked up and we had a restaurant bar donate $1,500 and we had a bunch of products. 2020, you know, COVID hit a little. We paused in 2021, came back last year, and now we're in our fourth year with our partnership with uh, Shoppers and Joe Fresh and, you know, great companies like Mike.
3: So, and what do you want people to do?
5: I just just to donate you know next time you're it's not about picking up those canned canned foods all the time when you you see food drives. it's picking up you know a bottle of shampoo or a bottle of soap or bars of soap or a pack of uh, pads or tampons because they are very expensive for something that's a necessity in life for people and just to pick up something like that and you can pick those up and drop them off at the radio station at um 875 Main Street West. You can drop them off at uh, Building Dreams Contracting at 87 Lansing, Unit K. As well, we'll be at the Bulldogs game this Friday with the street team. And if you're going to the game and you want to bring a donation, you can see the street team on the second level in between the two sets of stairs escalators.
3: And this is not just pads, tampons. It's diaper, shampoo, conditioner, body wash, bar soap, laundry, Detro- uh, Detroit, Detroit. Uh, sorry, <laughs> deodorant, hand cream, body lotion, toothbrushes, toothpaste, toilet paper, anything like that. All right, Mike. Let's let's get your take on all of this. What does this mean to you? How 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 and why did your company get involved in this?
6: Hey, Scott. Thanks for having us on. Uh, happy International Women's Day. Let's start there. Um, yeah, so we, we partnered with Olivia uh, last year for the Operation Santa Claus, mm-hmm. uh, got involved with the Children's Fund, raising some or collecting toys for that cause. And then following that, Olivia shared with us the story and how she got, uh, got involved with uh, uh, March Padness. And we immediately grabbed a hold of that and ran with it last year. It was a great success here inside of our office and then this year we really wanted to to make an impact so uh, i started doing a lot more um, social media posts started to be a lot more vocal with it olivia sat with me and invited me into the studio we did a really nice interview where she shared some some deeper uh deeper reasons why she got involved i was uh very appreciative of her opening up like that and uh, yeah there's there's a lot more to the to to this uh, than meets the eye you know like when I heard that young women were missing school because of uh, not not having personal Mm. care items you know that means that young women in our community are missing their education because of something that they're they cannot help Um, so if we can do our part and help in a lot of different ways uh, it's a real feel-good thing to do.
3: Wow. Thanks for contributing. And again, this this all goes back to the, the CHML Children's Fund and, and how many people are involved. Uh, how? What about your employees and your clients? How are they reacting to this and your involvement in it?
6: Everybody's really grabbed a hold of it since, uh, since I posted uh, yesterday, kind of like uh, just a reminder that we're being involved. Everybody jumped on their social media platforms. They shared the message even further. And uh, even more than we did last year, the, out- the outreach has been insane. Uh, we've had a lot of different people emailing, texting, uh, DMing us throughout social media. They've been seeing really big impacts within their network of people. Uh, the door keeps flying open and we're, we're getting large stacks of donations coming in. Uh, and, and of course, if it hasn't already been stated, the, you know, the, the, the fact that we can text in, I believe it was uh, at 38333. Uh, that $10 will be taken off of your bill and donated directly to essential aid. Uh, things like that that make it a bit easy. And, and not everybody is in a position to actually donate. So simply sharing the message allows it to be exposed to others that may be in a position to donate and buy the extra items and, and contribute. So it's it's been great. Everybody really appreciates that, uh, that this is is going on right
3: now. And of course this all continues. Uh, donations accepted up until March 31st and if you'd like to text you can do, uh, text DONATE to 30333. That's 30333 and make yourself a $10 uh, donation there and we thank you very much for uh, all of that. Mike Valchuk with us, owner of Building Dreams Contracting and supporter of the CHML Children's Fund. Olivia McKay, president of the Children's Fund and creator of March Padness. Olivia, incredible initiative. Good for you. Congratulations. Keep up the great work thank you so much scott deirdre pike is with us liberal candidate for hamilton center by election of course coming up march 16 Advance polls today and tomorrow are open and deirdre is with us now deirdre thanks for the time i hope you're doing well
0: i am scott it's great to be with you
3: again it's been a while so it has been a while so what made you decide to jump into this ring why did you decide to throw your hat into this
0: Well, you know, the day, uh, you know, it had been coming to me for a while in terms of people asking me, uh, where was your voice? Why didn't you run in municipal? Why didn't you run here? We need your voice. And I really thought my voice in terms of the words that I wrote for the Hamilton Spectator were just such a great opportunity for me to share the things that I really care about and want to influence in terms of uh, the compassion and so on that I, I think we need to operate in our community. But Um, There was a thing started to uh, kind of heat up, certainly around Bill 23. And I found myself uh, working with my uh, in my position with Climate Justice Niagara and uh, up at a protest uh, back in the fall about that bill uh and uh as i stood there to you know protect our farmland and so on i um again hearing from other people but also within me uh it became clear you know this is uh something that you can't deny a strong voice a passionate voice that represents everyone in hamilton center is needed and um uh quit running away this is you've got to run not run away so there you are i'm so
3: so for you the planets are correctly aligned right now this is this is it
0: Yes, yeah, absolutely. yeah,
3: so, uh, let me ask you on that note, what are considering uh it's the day after you're in the seat what what where do you see, what are your priorities for Hamilton Center? What are your priorities uh if you were to get the job?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, they're so broad reaching because of what's happening in this province, you know, it's hard to to uh narrow it down, but let me say that uh, you know that the one area I have spent, much of my passion on is around poverty and homelessness. And uh, when I was with the Social Planning and Research Council and coordinating Hamilton Organizing for Poverty Elimination, these sorts of affiliations led me to be very uh, clearly an advocate around social assistance, reform, and rates. And then when I had an opportunity to take a report on rural poverty to uh, the Premier at the time uh, and learned more and more about the basic income and Tom Cooper and I in our work around Uh, this area here for constituents in Hamilton Center, we knew that the basic income was a great tool. And that was the day that uh, back then that I said I needed to run. Now I want to bring that back. You know, McMaster did a great research piece right after Doug Ford canceled that pilot. Uh, They started to interview people that had been on the pilot and saw the advantages for all kinds of reasons around health, physical and mental health work and other uh opportunities so uh, i think there's some things to be implemented there running for the ontario liberals means that there's going to be an opportunity in three years to be uh able to bring this back again i think in terms of government we're the party that's going to be able to challenge most clearly doug ford and i'll tell you it is a needed challenge the 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 report that's out today on healthcare uh leads me to the next point but scott uh
3: uh let, let let's uh I, I wanted to touch on something you said when you were you were touching on housing and such obviously that is a heavy debate in uh hamilton right now and and you know there's talk of the green belt and whatever and, and many have talked about the area between the green belt and the boundary which is really where the expansion should be what are your thoughts on that obviously it's a combination uh and i'm not saying i'm not putting words in your mouth or telling you what to do or what or what have you but uh obviously infield development uh a, a major major. major uh uh reason to help increase density in the in the downtown core and such but where do you see that whole discussion around housing in in the future for hamilton Mm
0: -hmm. yeah i think we need to be um, really having everyone at the table that's involved in these conversations uh, developers politicians uh, elected people from every level of government and across the parties and the people uh you know people obviously residents but um here's the thing is that Uh, it is the thin edge of the wedge when we start to, you know, say, oh, it's only this one small part we're going to build on. It's, you know, you start these things, and you know how that wedge just grows. And uh, so, I say no, absolutely, to to building on the the green belt. And uh, we already know from housing advocates. And again,
3: I, I'm not talking about the green belt specifically, but that area, mm-hmm. that white belt area, the green belt off off bounds. I get that. Right. Uh, what about right. that area around the city? I mean, we're seeing uh, issues around densification, uh, the Delta High School site, and, and towers being built there. Resistance from the neighborhood. How do you
0: balance yeah. that? Yeah, I sure hear about that. You know, I by balancing that uh, that uh, Delta site I hear about, I've heard a lot of housing uh situations at the door that um people haven't been consulted on. So that's one thing. I again, I say that's really a, a key piece. Um and the density issue is uh is is uh manageable. It, there are better ways to build and we need to build communities, not just housing. And so whether it's the white belt, the you know, the brownfields, the, you know, the absentee landlords, the land that is available. There is lots of opportunity to build housing, but not without the infrastructure. And what Bill 23 does is only speaks about building housing, not building communities, communities that require water, communities that require hydro and all the lines that will, uh, you know, allow people to participate fully. So, uh, yeah, these are the important things, I think, to me and to uh- people we to, know
3: this afternoon you're going to be out on uh you know on, on the doorsteps and such what are you hearing from doors what are you at the doors what are you hearing from people
0: yeah well like i said the compassionate hearts of the folks really homelessness is a top issue i i can't deny that and i'd say the next one is also uh, an h that's healthcare. um i i've been at the doors of nurses who have broken down crying in front of me to you know as they share the experience that they've had in emergency rooms and today we have heard uh you know from um a new report out of the financial accountability office that there's a 21.3 billion dollar funding shortfall uh impacting ontario's uh health system and the ford government is responsible for this and people are talking about Uh, what they're experiencing in that healthcare system and when they hear that uh, we're now going to be short uh, another 33,000 nurses because of this um, and uh, that we've had the most unplanned emergency department closures in Ontario uh, in 2022, people know that it is time for uh, some attention on that healthcare system by a voice that understands, that has a mother who went through that system, that Uh, you know, really has the compassion and the mind to be able to make a difference. So we've only
7: got
3: a little bit of time left, but since we're on the issue, uh, obviously healthcare reform has been a massive uh, discussion post pandemic between the feds and the provinces and such. Uh, Are you confident that with the the meetings that have happened and and where we are to date that we will see those reforms that we will see improvement? I'm
0: not confident under the under the current government that, that we'll see the reforms that we need. Under what I see are reforms that are connected to uh, privatizing things and not keeping things um, as they should be in terms of uh, um, in the public realm. We need to have government's eyes and uh, attention on healthcare, not offering it up to the... It's outrageous that we think that somehow handing over the healthcare system and pieces of it uh, is uh, to private, for-profit uh, agencies is somehow going to improve the situation. It is not. We need uh, we need to change that conversation immediately. Deirdre Pike is
3: with us, liberal candidate for Hamilton Center. Don't forget the election, uh, by-election coming up March 16, advance polls uh, today and tomorrow. Deirdre, thanks so much for the time. Good
0: luck. Thanks so much, Scott. Great to see you again. Take good care.
3: You're
1: listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
8: The independent special rapporteur will make public recommendations which could include a formal inquiry or some other independent review process.
3: Uh, that is the Prime Minister speaking about a committee looking into election interference, and I guess uh, we'll go from there to decide whether that committee um, suggests a public inquiry. Uh, moving forward, let's bring in Michael Cooper, MP for St. Albert Edmonton, and is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing
9: well. Good afternoon.
3: So, Michael, uh, obviously, we're hearing reports today of two more high-level national security memos. Uh, again, talking about China covertly funding Canadian election uh, candidates. This is you know, obviously twice we're looking at here. Obviously, this problem is not going away. It continues to uh, to uh, present itself to the Prime Minister. W- what is going to happen next? Where does this go from here?
9: The key question is, what did the prime minister know, when did he know about it, and why did he fail to act? Uh, The prime minister has been anything but forthcoming. Uh, He refuses to answer uh, the most basic questions. Uh, You cited uh, a PCO uh, document, a memo, uh, that, uh, that indicated that there was a funneling of money two candidates through Beijing's proxies. The prime minister had to have seen that memo, and yet he continually states that he wasn't briefed about candidates receiving money from Beijing. How is that possible? Uh, Likewise, the prime minister refuses to uh, answer questions about who in his office, in the PMO, was briefed by CSIS about a liberal candidate and now liberal MP, Uh, who had been assisted by Beijing's Toronto consulate to win his nomination campaign. Uh, What we have is a prime minister uh, who uh, knew, who turned a blind eye to Beijing's interference, and is now trying to cover it up. Where does it go? Well, where it should go uh, is with the launching of a public inquiry, but the prime minister has shut that down. Likewise, our committee, the Procedure and House Affairs Committee that I'm a member of, uh, is try to get to the bottom of this interference in not not one but two elections under Justin Trudeau's watch and what has happened is the liberals have impeded the work of the committee uh, for example yesterday i put forward a motion to call Katie Telford to appear before committee the prime Minister's chief of staff, who is a critical witness to getting to the bottom of what the prime minister knows and uh, instead of debating the motion instead of voting on the motion, the Liberals wasted pre time the three hours of the committee's time filibustering and then uh, when we uh, after the meeting was suspended for a period to so the members could attend question period when opposition MPs showed up to return to business, the liberal MPs didn't show up and didn't therefore we didn't have a quorum and therefore the committee uh, was shut down. I mean these are the tactics of a government that is trying to cover up the truth.
3: So uh, will your questions be answered by these committees as opposed to a public inquiry? Inquiry is this about preventing this from happening again, or will we actually find out how we got to where we are twice?
9: Well, we need to get to the bottom of what happened in two elections and. Both a public inquiry and continued hearings at the Procedure and House Affairs Committee are important. A public inquiry will take some time. Uh, It needs to happen. But at the same time, we need answers now in public. And the forum to do that is at a parliamentary committee, uh, which the liberals are working actively, no doubt at the direction of the prime minister, to block and impede. Uh, what the prime minister has proposed, consistent with his attempt to cover up and bury the truth, uh, is to uh, have this go to a secret committee, the ensicop committee, uh, which is not a committee of parliament, but doesn't have parliamentary powers, but doesn't have the same ability to compel witnesses and uh, documents that parliamentary committees have, uh, that... Uh, sees secret evidence that writes secret conclusions that are then redacted by the PMO. In other words, the prime minister gets a veto and decides as to what is made public by any report of ENSICOP. And of course, this is the same prime minister who has so many questions to answer about what he knew and why he failed to act with respect to Beijing's interference. The prime minister's in the conflict. Uh
3: we, we've certainly heard that, uh, and you mentioned this, uh, Michael, that the length of time a public inquiry would take, but also security issues come into play as well. And I guess my question is, can we not find out about uh, potential uh, election or uh, Chinese Communist Party interference in Canadian life, whatever the angle is, can we not get to bottom of that without exposing deep, dark secrets? Can we not ask these questions and get answers without endangering national security?
9: Well, absolutely. I mean, it's just incredible that the Prime Minister would hide behind national security on basic questions such as, was he briefed? Or was his staff briefed, and who amongst his staff were briefed about a liberal candidate who was assisted by Beijing's Toronto Consulate? Surely answering that question doesn't imperil national security. The Prime Minister isn't interested in protecting national security. He's interested in protecting himself by covering up the truth. And I should add that the advice the Prime Minister received from CSUS is to provide transparency and sunlight, and to make foreign interference public. And the prime minister has done the opposite of that up until now.
3: We've certainly heard reports today, uh, and, and we've had various, uh, experts and heads of organizations on this show over the years. Chinese Canadians who have been complaining about interference in their Canadian life, uh, for years. Uh, is there anything we can do to listen to them? Is there any way they can be brought into this to help provide some transparency in all of this and, and, and avoid some of the racism that the Prime Minister's talking about?
9: Well, and, and the Prime Minister has tried to weaponize this issue against Chinese-Canadians, even though by, by insinuating that anyone who asks questions and wants to get answers is somehow racist, uh, which is completely uh, absurd. Uh, what is important to recognize is that this has nothing to do with Chinese-Canadians, this interference. This is interference by the Beijing regime, and Chinese-Canadians are first and foremost victims of Beijing's interference. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the Prime Minister continues to deflect and uh, dodge and not answer questions and try to block the work of the the Parliamentary Committee and refuses to hold a a public inquiry uh, indicates that, really, he seems not to care all that much about the very Canadians who are being harmed and victimized by Beijing's interference.
3: Uh, obviously, I know you're a conservative, Michael, but do the NDP hold the cards here? They're the ones that can flip the switch.
9: The NDP can help uh, more, in, in supporting, for example, at the Parliamentary Committee, uh, our, my motion to call Katie Telford to uh, appear at committee. And uh, it appears at this point, the NDP have finally recognized we need to hear from PMO officials. PMO officials shouldn't be shielded, notwithstanding the fact that they did uh, uh, work with the Prime Minister's office and the Liberals to to block previous efforts to get PMO uh, officials to committee. So we'll see what happens. But... uh, Up until now, uh, the NDP have been uh, somewhat all over the map, and it it seems that they're compromised as a result of this uh, supply agreement that they have with the Liberals. They're not acting like a normal opposition party would.
3: Michael Cooper, MP for St. Albert Edmonton. This week, uh, or just late last week, PM announcing a committee to look into election interference and a public inquiry is what is being asked for by the opposition and many Canadians. Michael, thank you for the time. Good luck. Be well. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer,
1: he'll
0: delve into the issue until he is. You're
3: listening to
1: Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
3: We certainly know uh, the conversations that are going on in Canada regarding uh, interference uh, in Canadian life by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, it appears China also has its own battle going on with the United States uh, of America and uh, their new foreign minister, The China's new foreign minister, uh, has said of the united states if they don't change their approach they are heading for conflict what does that mean dr jane bolden with us, professor of department of political science royal military college and with us now jane thanks for your time hope you're well
7: i'm well thank you how are you good thanks so
3: much uh jane your thoughts on this tone from uh, the chinese foreign minister uh, and what are the reasons the direction in the u.s what are they what are they arguing about
7: Well, there's definitely been a shift in tone on both sides, I would say, uh, recently, but most particularly with respect to China. I think there's a few reasons for that. One is, as you mentioned, we have a relatively new foreign minister there. And so there's some sense in which he's trying to make um, his own positions clear, make it clear as well that he's in charge in foreign affairs. But the other aspect is signaling, and both sides are engaging in that in a very heavy way at the moment, signaling to each other and signaling to their domestic audiences. And this shift on the Chinese side has come about for a variety of reasons. One of them is the series of recent events that have put China in a, a less than positive light internationally, and China puts a lot of the blame for that on the United States.
3: Um are is the US uh, do they have the same issues regarding interference whether it's in election campaigns or just general life are, are, are do they get the same sort of uh, influence or are is that being attempted on US soil as it is here in Canada
7: Absolutely they do I mean, we have a lot of – we have in the past paid a lot more attention to the possibility of Russian interference in Mm -hmm. um, involvement in various ways in U.S. elections. But absolutely, China is involved on that score as well, and much more so, one assumes. It's hard because a lot of that is – um, secret. Um, it's intelligence that doesn't get shared a lot, but for sure, China is behaving in the same way with respect to the United States. And I think that's why we see things like TikTok becoming an issue um, on both for Canada, the United States, also for European states, because states in the West are increasingly aware that China is engaging in this kind of activity. And so we're seeking to Um, shut down, if you like, proactively different routes that could be used by China, not just to interfere in elections, but to be involved in our citizens' lives.
3: Are you surprised China is still taking this position in a post-COVID-19 world? And by that, I mean, you know, whether you debate whether it was a lab or a wet food market or what have you, we know how this started. We know how each part of the world uh, tried to control it and what they did in, in vaccination and such. Many thought that China owed the world some sort of explanation, some sort of apology for literally bringing the world to a standstill for for a couple of years. Are you surprised? They're continuing to take this kind of position considering what everybody's been through?
7: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I'm I'm not surprised at one level because they're you know, the Chinese approach is very much one of wanting to maintain a certain image and to But isn't that image isn't that, isn't or that or image to,
3: gone though, Jane? Like sorry to interrupt, but isn't that isn't that image blown to Smithereens in a post-pandemic world?
7: Um, You would think it might be, but from their perspective, it isn't. Um, And I think it's also why they're so upset about the weather balloon and why they are um, picking up on other issues like that, that all in some ways are less substantive. The weather balloon is very substantive, but they relate to the question of China's image internationally. Um, And I think it's why they're playing the Russian situation so closely Um, So carefully as well, Um, China wants to be a leader in the international environment. And I know that seems counterintuitive because of what you've just said, right? It seems Mm -hmm. it didn't behave responsibly with respect to the pandemic. A lot of people, as you mentioned, really believe that, but they don't see it that way. And they do want to be um, seen as a responsible leader in the international system, and so they're pushing back against all these things that are portraying them in a light that detracts from that image.
3: Is this a blast of reality, no matter which side of this discussion you're you're talking from, whether it's theirs or, or the side of democracy? I mean, is this a blast of reality of how the world is looking at everyone?
7: I think there's an element of that for sure. And, you know, there's a lot of people I know that, you know, one of the starts to this story was the idea of, statement that we may be heading towards conflict. And I think there are some people who think that's inevitable. I don't myself. But I think the reality is, we're entering into, um, we're in, and possibly deepening into a period where that is how states are looking at each other. There is an increasing divide and uncertainty and mistrust. Um, And it's probably that is probably going to last for a while yet.
3: Dr. Jane Bolden with us, professor, Department of Political Science, Royal Military College. Fascinating discussion, Jane. Thanks so much for the time. Be well.
7: You as well. Thank you very much for having me.
1: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: All right. Today, um, you might have heard a collective sigh of relief right across the country as the Bank of Canada decided to put a hold on its uh, continuing, uh, I don't know how many consecutive, seven consecutive rates, uh, hikes in a row, I believe it is. Don will uh, tell us what that is all about. Uh, But now holding it steady at 4.5%, so no interest rate hike by the Bank of Canada uh, today. Let's bring in Don Fox, Executive Financial. Consultant Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management, and, of course, you can hear Planning Your Financial Future every Saturday morning with us at 8 a.m. Don is with us now. Don, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, doing well, Scott. Good to hear from you. So uh, after this announcement was made, did you hear a collective sigh of relief right across the country? (laughs) I mean, people must be uh, a little relieved.
10: It's funny. It's 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 now that uh, interest rates don't go up is great news. Um, it used to be that you know if they yeah. went down it was great news. So yes, we've had quite the uptick in interest rates over the last bit. Um, to be exact, it was two point four five percent was the prime lending rate a year ago, and now it's six point seven. So that's a four and a quarter percent increase over the last year. And I know it's kind of like death by a thousand paper cuts, too. It's been slowly, and and I say slowly, like half a percent, a percent. And it's got to this stage that, yeah, it's it's a a big increase, but it's working. Um, Inflation has slowly tapered off, and inflation was at eight, just uh, tipped over eight percent back a while back. Uh, I think it was about four or five months ago. And now it's down to about 5.9 percent. So It's taking its toll, and that's, I guess, why they did not increase interest rates anymore.
3: Uh, Obviously, uh, as you mentioned, uh, consecutive rate hikes in a row. This went up very, very quickly, which is why, or maybe, well, obviously, it's why uh, you're you're hearing of people feeling the pinch and such. But as you mentioned, um, at least the one bright light here is it's doing what it was supposed to do, no matter how painful it is for everyone else.
10: Yeah, and I guess it's that balancing act and not hurting the economy too much. They don't want to necessarily put it into a recession. But the same token, they don't want to have these ever-increasing inflation rates, which do a lot of damage to the economy. It erodes everybody's purchasing power. In fact, you know, if your wages on average went up about 5.5% in the last year, well, inflation was as high as 8%. So people were not keeping up with their inflation. So literally, their lifestyle was dropping. And so the, order, the best way to combat that is to increase interest rates. Again, a little pain hopefully for bigger gain. And that's kind of what's going on at this stage.
3: Uh, as you mentioned, and you have said in the past, when once they start doing this, which is hence all of the <laughs> increases in a row, it takes a while for this to actually work its way through. Are you confident that, well, I, I know you don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> well, I know you do have a crystal ball, but you don't use it. Uh, so um, do you anticipate that, because um, they have been saying, you know, this is just a temporary thing If they got to go up again, they're going to go up. But do you think it has done what it was supposed to do enough that we can hopefully relax and I know this is just a prediction.
10: That's a that's a tough question, as you know, Scott. And it's Canada, it seems to be working. It's the U.S. that actually we're looking over to our big brother down south and saying, hmm, they are still talking about increasing interest rates and perhaps even going as high as a half percent increase. And you're watching our Canadian dollar drop because of that. And it's now at a four month low because if their interest rates are higher. It, it means more people say, oh, I'll just invest my money in their bonds because right. their bonds are paying a higher price or higher interest rate. So I guess from a, for exporters in Canada, that's a great thing. Now, that'll mean people can buy our goods cheaper because our dollar is cheaper than the US dollar in comparison. So there's more than one thing moving at a time here. But if we just looked at our country in exclusion to everybody else, this is, yes, it's working. But we have to play the overall global game at the same time, which is tricky.
3: So, what does it say, Don, that the U.S. is going up at this point, uh, still going up at this point? What's the difference in the two scenarios?
10: They are still spending lots of money, I guess. (laughs) They had had more money to spend, and it it seemed that the wealthier people were still not changing their lifestyle. Maybe they had excess money, and and their debt didn't really matter to them as much, whereas you know, we have a more of a middle class situation in Canada and debt has a bigger a bigger role to play. And all these mortgages, um, particularly variable rate mortgages, line of credits that constantly were ticking up. And basically in a nutshell, for every $100,000 of debt a Canadian has had in the last year, it is now costing them $375 per month more now mm. than it did a year ago. And that's after tax money. So that's a lot of money. So if again multiply that 100,000 by how much debt you know the listeners may have, and that's how and again I don't have to tell the listeners because they're probably feeling it as we speak. You know, we talked,
3: uh, we've talked in your show for 20 years when interest rates went down this low. And I remember for the first five years, it was, Oh, that's only temporary. (laughs) And then after that, it was, Okay, maybe this is the norm. So we've seen a 20 year run of this. Is it over? (laughs) Is it safe to say, uh, yeah, we, reality has caught up with us.
10: I, I, there's a lot of predictions saying it's, it will start to drop and you're starting to see, as I mentioned, from 8% down to just under six. They're talking about even going down to as low as say 4% by the end of the year. And it takes about eight months to a year for these increase in interest rates to work its way through the economy where people start spending less money which creates less demand for goods which then therefore the prices stop going up as fast or even actually start reversing themselves in a perfect scenario. So yeah again like I said there's lots of moving parts how it plays in everybody's financial plan is a different story. And this is where you have to see you know speak to your financial planner how do you take advantage of these these rates? Do you adjust your lifestyle? Do you consolidate um, you know hopefully you have a if you have a mortgage um, if it's locked in, great. maybe you can weather the storm and maybe you'll come due after the rates drop again and you'll miss this whole thing. So again, every situation is different, but we are starting to see again the impact of these rates finally starting to go up, which is impacting people's spending habits. Don Fox
3: with us, Executive Financial Consultant with the Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management, planning your financial future every Saturday at 8 a.m. House, uh, sorry, the Bank of Canada, rather, keeping interest rates at 4.5%. Don, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be
10: well. Thanks, Scott. Anytime.
3: Boy, the story involving um, uh, Chinese interference in Canadian life, elections, what have you, uh, certainly has been pushed to the uh, front burner. And that is due to the great reporting of Sam Cooper from Global News, national investigative journalist, and also some great people at the Globe and Mail. And finally, these stories are are getting the attention that they need. Uh, And again, on a day where uh, we're hearing reports of two high-level memos alleging that Beijing covertly funded Canadian elections, uh, candidates. Here we go again. Sam Cooper with us now, Global News National Investigative Journalist, and here now. Sam, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
11: I'm well. Thanks, Scott.
3: So, Sam, what can you tell us about what's being reported today and these two high-level memos and and and, and bring us up to date on, on the latest that we're hearing?
11: What's new today is that for the first time, uh, we have been able to quote directly from uh, a couple of high-level memos that uh, we we haven't yet quoted, and it, it's important because these are documents that were produced for Prime Minister Trudeau, his cabinet members, and his senior aides. And uh, as you know, there's been a lot of debate about uh, some of our reporting, some of the Globe and Mail's. There's been suggestions that intelligence is is, is inaccurate, and et cetera. But look, these are documents, uh, the first important one, a January 2022 Privy Council office Special report on China's interference, Uh, it's important to note this was uh, boiled down from 100 CSIS intelligence investigative reports. uh, A number of them, according to my sources, focusing on the Toronto area alleged foreign interference network involving at least 11 MPs or candidates, that is, in 2019. Now, this is important. This is the quote that this document says, reported for the first time today. A large clandestine transfer of funds earmarked for the federal election from the People's Republic of China Consulate in Toronto was transferred to an elected provincial government official via a staff member of a 2019 federal candidate. End quote. That's a mouthful, but why it is so important is... On paper, we have the Privy Council Office, which is mandated to warn our Prime Minister of serious national security issues, saying China transferred money into this election interference network. This is a black and white document. So that should put to rest some of the uh, backlash and debate with people saying, you know, where is this intelligence coming from? Now we can report it. Uh, another very important high-level document was uh, – a tabled for prime minister Trudeau two months before the 2019 election. Now, uh, this is from the national security intelligence panel, a bipartisan panel started by Mr. Trudeau in 2017 to report, uh, on very sensitive documents to boil down again, national security issues. And so, uh, we have confirmed this time, the prime minister's office confirmed he received this very special report, uh, and now what's important here is that for the very first time, we can report from my view of the unredacted document, which says that, uh, that again, foreign governments clandestinely transfer funds to favored political candidates. And so, again, it's so important to stress Prime Minister Trudeau, his office have confirmed they received this document. So it puts to rest some of that uh, those questions about what the government knew about allegations of clandestine transfers before and after the 2019
3: election. Sam, what does this say that it happened twice, two different elections? I mean, one's bad enough. How come it wasn't caught then? Why two?
11: that i i believe that's one of the most important questions that that our government needs to answer now uh today here we've reported uh a, a more explosive documents about specific allegations of uh, uh the embassy working with community groups to pick handpick candidates a uh, a commercial consul from the chinese consulate urging chinese businesses to donate to uh, Canadian candidates through acquired companies in Canada that China has bought. So uh, this is a warning uh, before the election in 2019. We've reported about a warning way back in 2017, a memo created at the request of the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff that said China is funding candidates. We've reported in February 2020, a Privy Council Office Intelligence memo said uh, this funding of candidates by uh, Beijing is happening in Toronto and it was predicted to get worse in future elections. So back to your question, why, why has nothing happened? I believe that that is the question that our prime minister hasn't answered because again, uh, I don't want to get into how many different bodies are involved in the reporting, but this is very important. Mm. The national security panel of parliamentarians that warned the prime minister before the 2019 election, as I've just said about, China's funding of candidates is the very same panel. The prime minister is asking to now look into yeah. election interference so the, 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 there's just a mountain of evidence that this prime minister and its senior ministers and aides have been warned on paper many times and essentially no action to counter this very serious threats against our elections. <laughs>
3: Uh, You know, Sam, we've had uh, people from various organizations, uh, Chinese-Canadian organizations, talking about this forever. You've been talking about it forever. Uh, There was a report today that Chinese-Canadians have been saying the same thing for years. Why are we not doing more to listen to the plight of Chinese-Canadians here who are being harassed?
11: I think... uh I really, to to be, you know, very direct, if I talk to the people in the community, my sources are the same ones that sometimes talk to Canadian intelligence, that complain to the RCMP, they say, unfortunately, they're not being listened to, because very uh, well funded and very well connected to the Chinese regime uh, leaders in the community, in the communities are the ones that are getting a FaceTime with political hmm. parties why would that be well certainly donations reportedly have a lot to do with it it's all about yeah. the money is what the community is telling me they're not feeling protected
3: uh, do they are, are they do they is there a need for them to get out and get their story told are you hearing that?
11: Well, I, actually uh you know in the past few weeks as other media organizations have started to break some stories on on this important file we have seen some some of the community leaders that that are arguing for democracy or were in hong kong or or taiwan uh we've seen them on national news programs saying hey we have a voice and we've been screaming well we've been arguing for attention for a long time and it looks like finally they're they're starting to get a uh, uh you know the airtime
3: they deserve uh getting uh, i'm all over the place here but sam when i get you on i want to fire all sorts of questions at you can we not get to the bottom of this find out all the questions that you're looking for answers to can we not do that without uh, uh without getting into secrets of national security without exposing the farm can't we do that without exposing secrets
11: That's a very good question. I mean, my first thought is, uh, uh, of course, it it is a a crisis when uh, whistleblowers are going to reporters with sensitive documents. But I could tell you that uh, the the people that do this kind of thing don't do it lightly. It, It could have come after years of consideration of this government not acting on very solid intelligence and evidence. We're talking about wiretaps. We're talking about warrants. We're talking about surveillance. We're talking about other countries corroborating what Canadian intelligence knows. This is an international operation. And so could we get to the bottom of it in a public inquiry? I've seen uh, some good inquiries, and I've seen some that uh, are are stonewalled, really, and go nowhere. All I I can really—I agree with the experts that say uh, partisan committees won't do the job. I'm afraid I don't believe that a a special rapporteur and uh, the national security panel will get to the bottom of this issue because it raises questions of, as I've reported, our key fundraisers in the Liberal Party, you know, the sitting government part of this. And it's not just the Liberal liberal government, but they're the ones that have been in power while this really ramped up to a, a crisis level.
3: Sam Cooper with us, Global News investigative reporter. Of course, you can see more on Global News tonight and on the Global website, our website as well. Two high-level memos allege Beijing covertly funded Canadian election candidate. Sam, as always, thanks so much for the time. Great work. Be well. Thanks, Scott.
1: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: All right. You hear the meatloaf? You want to bring in Scott Radley, don't you? Uh, Scott Radley show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton
8: Spectator. He is with us now, Scott. Thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. and i got to tell you, I saw the loaf at Cop's Coliseum about 10 years ago. Really? He came to Hamilton and um you know sad that he's gone he he couldn't sing anymore at this point. It was more of a a suggestion than a singing. <laughs> <laughs> there were there were A about suggestion. There were about nice. He hit about three notes. There were about three notes that he hit, but you got the the rhythm but they was they were there. Out of the park. Yeah. Well, and he had ama- an amazing band, and the girl who was singing that I can't remember her name was yep. fantastic. But yeah, he he was you know he was getting up there, and the voice was kind of shot, and but nonetheless, it was meatloaf. It was fun. I'm sure uh, that was around
3: the time that I interviewed him. I think I interviewed him twice, and he was an incredibly nice guy. I remember that
8: because we, we replayed the interview, yeah. replayed the interview on the day of his death. But yeah, a very nice man. And, and it's a sort of overlooked a little bit. He was an outstanding actor. That's what he was. He was an, he was an actor
3: playing a, uh, a rock star.
8: That's yeah. what Meat Loaf was. He yeah. was an amazing, and, and it's funny where you, he sort of pops up, you'll be watching a movie and you're not even really realizing it. And all of a sudden it's like, yeah. that's, that's wait, that's, that's Mr. Loaf. Yeah. And yeah, that was him. Don't ever ask him how he got you. He got that name. It's like, oh Jesus again! You're kidding me. <laughs>
3: Football. I was a kid. Let's move on. Uh-huh. All right. So, uh, Brantford is going to build a new arena. I shouldn't say that. They're talking about it. Uh, are you surprised to hear this? Um, no, I'm not. But gee whiz, uh, I don't even. <laughs> I don't even think they're in the bus yet. And all of a sudden, we're talking about this. What are
8: your thoughts? I know it's on your show tonight. Yeah, we got the mayor coming up on the show, and be the mayor of Brantford uh, on this. One because last night I didn't know this was coming and I think no. a lot of people were surprised. So last night, Brantford Council brings forward this motion to m- sort of move the sticks and they voted unanimously to investigate what a new arena in Brantford would, would cost, what it would take, where they could do it, all those kind of things. So we're going to be talking about this in a minute. But um, it's a – boy, uh, yeah, this is – this. if I'm a Hamilton hockey fan who loves the Bulldogs – I, I'm i getting concerned. I mean, I really am getting concerned because this is the very thing that Michael Landlauer has been asking the city of Hamilton for for 15 years, 10 years, whatever it is. Yeah. And he's been offering to put his own money up and he gets shot down again and again and again. And then Brantford gets the first chance and boom, they are all over this. And you know what? I, I don't know that the Bulldogs are not coming back. I have no inside mm-hmm. knowledge of anything. But boy, this – I mean, I got a call i going tomorrow. Um, boy, they are working hard to make it difficult for the Bulldogs to leave. Uh, that's my next point.
3: How does this all get used as leverage for them? Because obviously the Bulldogs are in
8: the driver's seat. Well, so the mayor last night in the council meeting, one of the things he said was – and it was a very – I think it's a true point, which is this whole thing – doesn't even get a start unless there is huge support in Brantford for this team. Yeah, yeah. And yet they've already sold 2,500 season tickets for all three years they are there, which is way more than are sold here. It means that they're going to only have to sell about 500 single-game tickets per game to sell out every single game. Hmm. They're going to have the they're going to have the crowds, they're going to have the atmosphere. So they're all, do they already know that they're going to be sold out for the next three years? Well, not exactly. 75%? Well, yeah, they've got now more than 75%. What's what's 2,500 out of 3,000? You do the math, whatever that is. That's guaranteed sold all the time. This is why I'm in journalism, because I can't do math. But that's that's amazing. That's done. Right? So you've got 500 tickets per game that you have to sell, assuming you sell no more season tickets. And with, I mean, the Bulldogs do one of the things they do really well is group sales and selling it to hockey associations and stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, you it is a reasonable expectation that for all intents and purposes, they are going to be sold out for three straight years. And one of the things that Hamilton has never been able to do, partially because the arena is so massive, is create any sense of urgency for demand. Yeah. Here, if yeah, you don't buy point, your tickets point. at the start of the year, you may not yep. be going to a game. Yeah, good point. Yeah. And so, you know what? Now, now, you suddenly have some momentum. It's what people are talking about in town, it's the hot ticket. And now, is there appetite for a 5,000 seat arena, especially when you consider that Brantford gets five to six million a year from their casino that gets handed to them? Yeah. Yep. Well, you suddenly take, let's say, 10 years of that money. And you've got sixty million dollars already to get you going towards the arena, and probably you've only got ten or twenty million left. And so you get some naming rights, and you maybe get if you know if the bulldogs decide to stay, you ask Endlauer if he'll chip in a little bit, or you know, and then what? You need another five million from taxpayers over ten years. That's not unreasonable. That's certainly doable. It's it's not a crazy idea that they can do this and not bankrupt the city. How is Hamilton City Council reacting to this? <laughs> um, I, well, who knows? Um, so, one of the funny things that Mike Landlauer said to me today—I was talking to him today about this—he said at the at the Family Day game. Uh, that was held in Hamilton, of course. They do every year. Mm -hmm. He says a whole bunch of Brantford City Councilors came to that game. He goes, I had more Brantford City Councilors in my building in one day than Mm -hmm. I've had Hamilton City Councilors in the last five years. So the answer to how is Hamilton City Council, what are they doing? Um, I don't think that he expects anything. All right, enough said. We'll let you
3: draw your own conclusion. Uh, Scott Radley with us, host of The Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. And, of course, has an interview with the mayor of Brantford on all of this coming up uh, 620. right after. Yep. 620. All right, have a good one, Scott. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Scott.
1: Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
3: That's it for us. Thanks for listening. listening. Listening as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Mr. Lowe wrote in to say, Today we acknowledge the
8: contributions made by wives, daughters, grandmothers, great grandmothers, aunts, and nieces. Thank you for what you have done and continue to do on this special day for all of you, Mr. Lowe.